Well, welcome to Pregnancy Help Podcast. I'm Christine Grimmett, and we're listening today in on a conversation about abortion myths. I have Andrea Trudden, our Vice President of Communications and Marketing at Heartbeat International, here with me. And with abortion in the news so much these days, we're hearing a lot of false medical information going around regarding pregnancy, miscarriage, abortion. So we've brought in an expert today. Dr. Brent Bowles joins us, and he is our Medical Director of the Abortion Pill Rescue Network. Thank you both for being here. Before we get started, I would like to mention a valuable resource that's available to our listeners for free to help share the truth about what pregnancy centers are really doing. PregnancyCenterTruth.com is this episode's sponsor. You can send your staff, volunteers, supporters, those who come to you with questions, or even those who accuse you of running a fake clinic. You can send them to PregnancyCenterTruth.com. It includes facts, statistics about the work of Pregnancy Help Ministries. Uh, They're available as a free download that you can then share on your social media pages. We also have medical facts and statistics there as well. We've seen, especially recently, that it's so easy for the lies to be spread and accusations to be made. So we have made it easy to combat the lies and to spread truth. Visit PregnancyCenterTruth.com. Now, Andrea, I know you have a list of myths about abortion that we're going to debunk today. So I will turn things over to you. Thank you so much, Christine. And thank you, Dr. Bowles, for joining us today on Pregnancy Health Podcast. We appreciate your insight and your expertise, because as Christine was mentioning, there's a lot of misinformation that is going around. Uh, Much of it is very shallow. Um, The argument is very quickly uh, dispelled. However, there is a lot of it out there. And so we actually, we we are only going to be talking about three today, though we could continue growing that um, list as more and more, um, sadly, uh, political figures and celebrities uh, amplify these myths, these claims about um, how horrible the world would be um, if abortion was not available to try to paint uh, friendly, family-friendly states as the bad guys. So um, first of all, before we jump into those claims, Dr. Bowles, I'd love to hear just a little bit of your background as to how you got involved with pro-life work and have made this part of your mission uh, within your life. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you guys today, and I always am glad to have the opportunity to discuss this topic with anyone that wants to to hear some truth about it. So thank you, and we I really appreciate the work that all of you do at Heartbeat uh, and appreciate the chance to be involved with what should the important work that you're doing. Um, I guess my first thing that could be called a, a public stance on on the issue of life was in 1995. Um, I was the chief administrative resident in my residency program, which was the University of Louisville that year. I was about to graduate and move on into private practice after finishing my training. And the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists at that point had issued an edict that all residency training programs Uh, if they wished to be accredited, would offer training in elective or induced abortion uh, to their residents and interns. But they did, at that point, they were willing to allow residents to opt out of such training if they did not wish to engage in it. They just had to opt out in writing. And we, the residents that I was with at that time, there were 23 of us in the program at that time, Uh, We discussed it, and all 23 of us signed letters opting out of the training. Now, not everyone 
in that group was pro-life. Many of them were very pro-choice. But everyone in that group was well aware of the quality of care that was being provided in the abortion clinics in Louisville at that time, because we saw their complications when they came to the emergency room. Uh, And none of us, even the ones that were pro-choice, wanted to have anything to do with being involved in things that were going on in any of Louisville's abortion clinics in the mid-1990s. So all 23 out of 23 opted out. And uh, actually, there was a story about that published in the Courier-Journal, which was the, the, lar- the largest newspaper in Kentucky at the time, and they called to interview me about it. So that was my first, I guess, foray into the pro-life arena. Several years later, I was asked to speak at a pregnancy banquet uh, in the small town where I was practicing OBGYN at the time. I enjoyed doing that. And uh, then I moved and several years went by before I did anything else uh, in the pro-life arena. And then I was asked to step in and become the medical director of a pregnancy center that by now has been functioning in Tennessee for more than 35 years. That was 14 years ago. So for 13 years, I was their medical director, uh, read all the ultrasounds that were done, handled questions and problems and, you know, what to do with abnormal ultrasounds and helped people who had issues that needed to get plugged into care, find someone who would take care of them or just take care of them myself. Um, So for 13 years, I was their medical director. And that opportunity afforded me Uh, the ability to become involved when legislative issues were being considered. So that's, that's where I'm at now. Well, and as we know, uh, the Dobbs case was decided and handed down June 24th. And um, even before then, when, uh, or in early May, when the leaked decision came out, we started to see um, a lot of volatility and a lot of claims being made online specifically, um, but then being amplified through the media. Um, so one of the talking points that has been going around that I'd like for you to speak to um, from your experience and knowledge is the, um, the claim that abortion is actually 14 times safer than carrying to term. Can you speak to that and kind of give us a little bit of insight as to where this myth may have come from and why it's going making the rounds? Sure. Uh, First, I'd like to point out that uh, real facts and real data are very useful in combating false rhetoric. So abortion has largely been illegal in Texas for about a year now uh, since the Texas law was passed and the the judicial system refused to overturn it. Um, How many women in Texas have died because they couldn't get abortions? Uh, I'm not aware of any. I think if there had been one, it would have been trumpeted by the media before the patient's corpse was even cold. Uh, But that's not happened because it's not necessary. Other facts, there's data that shows multiple countries on multiple different continents, South America, including Central America, Africa, and Europe. When countries outlaw abortion, measurable facts, the important measures of maternal and child health in those countries improve after abortion is outlawed. They don't get worse. Similarly, when a country where abortion has been restricted liberalizes its abortion policies, maternal mortality rates go up. 
So it's kind of hard to argue with the facts. You know, you can theorize, you can use statistics, you can, it's very easy to twist statistics because statistics is a confusing field. Uh, but that's what's been done to create this myth that abortion is 14 times safer than childbirth. Uh, the first problem they have is the facts don't support that. Uh, as I just outlined, countries that outlaw abortion, maternal and child health improves. Countries that um, become much more permissive about abortion have a deterioration in measures of maternal and child health. So uh, the facts uh, do not come into agreement with uh, Planned Parenthood, no matter how much Planned Parenthood wants it to. Um, the, the article itself, there is one article, and although other researchers have attempted to, to duplicate this article's findings, no one's ever been able to. Um, the article came out mm, roughly probably around 10 years ago. I don't remember, remember if it was 2012 or 2014. There was an article written by doctors Raymond and Grimes, uh, published in the Green Journal, which is the Journal of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, ACOG is an organization that has done tremendously good things for women's health in terms of advancing the commitment to evidence-based medicine, to setting good standards for women's health care in all areas of women's health except abortion. And when it comes to abortion, they, without exception, place abortion ideology ahead of truth and women's safety. They always have, and I see no evidence of that changing. Uh, they have participated in fraudulently deceiving the federal courts uh, on the safety of abortion, on particular methods of abortion. Uh, so, but ACOG published the Raymond and Grimes paper, and they were eager to do so because it promotes the myth that abortion is safer than childhood, childbirth. Um, the conclusion of the article was that you are 14 times more likely to die as a result of delivering a baby, you know, at term or near term uh, than you are by having an abortion. The authors of the article, in, in their work, they opened with a false statement that their, their conclusions were based on abortion mortality data compared with childbirth mortality data from all 50 states. Problem number one for Dr. Raymond and Grimes is this. There is no such data set in the United States of America. It, it doesn't exist. So the current status of, and the status at the time this article was written, the status of abortion, death and complication reporting in the United States was this. 22 states do not report any data on abortion deaths or complications to the CDC. Those 22 states in the minority of the 50 states actually have the majority of the abortion clinics in the United States and perform the majority of the abortions in the United States. That minority of states has nearly 60% of the abortion clinics and right at 60% of all the abortions performed are performed in those states. So the data on more than half of the abortions performed in America is missing from their data set, which they claimed was comprehensive and included information from all 50 states. It doesn't because those states don't report anything to the CDC on deaths and mortalities. 
Then of the other 28 states that do have reporting requirements that require abortion providers to report deaths and complications to the CDC, they have no enforcement mechanism. Nobody's ever been penalized that I can find in any of those 28 states for failing to report deaths and complications. So expecting the abortion industry to accurately report its own deaths and complications is like expecting an embezzler to file an accurate accounting report. It's just not going to happen. Um, and there's no evidence that it ever has. Furthermore, the abortion industry is, has been shown to not even be aware of most of their own complications. Uh, an excellent report by the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs that came out um, almost two years ago that, looks at, that looked at over 5,000 adverse event reports related to medication abortion found that two-thirds of the patients who required care as an emergency with surgery or blood transfusion or both after having a medication abortion had their care provided by someone who was not the abortion provider either a private gynecologist or someone on call through an emergency room. So two thirds of their complications, they don't even know about. So how can we believe that they really had accurate data from 50 states when no such data set exists? They would say that we also use, they would say, we also used data from the Guttmacher Institute, which does have information from all 50 states. And yes, the Guttmacher Institute does have some data from all 50 states. And for your listeners who don't know what the Guttmacher Institute is, it's actually the research arm of Planned Parenthood, named for Alan Guttmacher, who was one of Planned Parenthood's earliest, if not the first, president of Planned Parenthood. So hardly an unbiased source. Um, the Guttmacher Institute does survey all abortion providers in all 50 states with questionnaires about how many have you done, what are the patient demographics involved, patient age, patient ethnic background, gestational age, financial status of the patient, reason for the abortion. But do you know what the Guttmacher Institute doesn't ask about on these surveys? They don't ask about deaths and complications. So you can't say the Guttmacher Institute has data on deaths and complications from all 50 states because they don't even care enough to ask about them when they survey abortion providers. So Raymond and Grimes wrote a paper and said, we have data on abortion mortality from all 50 states, but no such data set exists in America. So there's problem number one with the paper. You started to ask something? Oh, no, I was just going to say. And so there, this whole argument is banking on this one paper that if they were being looked at today, it would be cited to have all of these flaws of like it, the methodology was not necessarily there and, and you're taking information and putting it out there, but it's not um, as researched as it could have been. Correct. Um, it, it's just, there's no way to say that this is accurate or reliable because it is predicated on an entirely false assumption at the beginning that the data set is accurate and reliable. Then they go into analyzing their so-called data set by comparing maternal mortality ratios to abortion mortality rates. Now, to the medically unsophisticated listener, that sounds, well, you know, that's a good way to do it, I guess, but it's really not. And a former official with the CDC, Dr. Julie Gerberding, 
commented on the need for better abortion statistic tracking in the United States. And she said that you can't compare the two. Her exact words were close to her exact words were abortion mortality rates and maternal mortality ratios are two different statistical measures and they're used for two different reasons. They're used for different purposes. So Dr. Raymond and Dr. Grimes compared two things that really shouldn't be compared. Uh, And even the CDC says that's not a legitimate comparison. Uh, And it's not even like they're comparing oranges, apples and oranges. They're comparing apples to elephants. And the elephant in the room is there is no abortion mortality tracking in the United States of America. So how can you conclude this? So that's how they got their statistics. They say they looked at the death risk from having a baby and they looked at the death risk from abortion because they have accurate data from all 50 states and these were comparable statistics and you're 14 times more likely to die from having a baby than you are from having an abortion. Um, But I think I've laid out why they can't make that conclusion and why that conclusion can't be trustworthy and why no researcher with integrity has been able to duplicate their results. Uh, and where it has been published has been in the green, the green catalog or green, the, the green journal, which is run by ACOG, yes. which is no friend to pro-life. Correct. Then there was a very excellent rebuttal by a researcher named Dr. David Reardon, who raised all these points and put together some extra stuff about this is data that was available to you when you wrote this paper and you left it out. Um, well, the Green Journal refused to publish his rebuttal, and he had to go to a different peer-reviewed journal to get his rebuttal of the Raymond and Grimes paper published. But two points that he raised, and these, these are the bases are loaded, home runs about to be hit type points uh, for this. Um, one data set that the, Dr. Raymond and Dr. Grimes completely ignored was an extensive analysis of 173,000 patients in California, women of reproductive age who were Medicaid patients. Um, A massive research project was undertaken that looked at those 173,000 women and looked at their causes for death for the ones that had death certificates, and then looked at whether or not those women who had died had any recent care for pregnancy, whether it was a delivery, a miscarriage, an ectopic, or an abortion. And they found that post-abortive women out of this population of almost 200,000 patients were not only 1.6 times more likely to have died after an abortion than after a childbirth, but they were 2.5 times more likely to kill themselves after an abortion than after childbirth. And more than that, they also not just deaths, but the incidence of uh, addiction and substance abuse in post-abortive women was higher. Um, The rate of other complications was higher. So across the board, this very well done analysis of nearly 200,000 patients in California, women of reproductive age, showed definite measures of increased risk for post-abortive women as compared to maternity patients. Secondly, 
there, so you can't compare these two things in the United States because there's no data set that allows you to. But there are countries in the world that do a better job tracking this kind of stuff. And Finland is one of those countries. Finland has a socialized healthcare system. And as such, they have a single payer centralized system for providing all healthcare needs for everyone in Finland. So they have tracking. They can see who's interacted with the healthcare system and why, what happened, you know, what were their outcomes, what were their diagnoses. So they looked at a huge database uh, over a number of years in Finland and looked at all reproductive age women and they looked at death certificates for reproductive age women. And they, f- they linked those death certificates to any recent treatment for pregnancy, whether it was childbirth or prenatal care or a miscarriage or an ectopic or an induced abortion. And what they found was that the death rate following an abortion was nearly four times higher than the death rate following a delivery. The mortality rate per 100,000 deliveries was about 28 out of 100,000. The death rate out of 100,000 abortions was over 80. It's like 81 or 82. So 82, 81 or 82 per 100,000 abortions died 28 patients who had a delivery out of 100,000 died. So that's nearly, that's between three and four times higher rate. Um, Now critics will say, well, some of those post-abortive deaths were from suicide and mental illness and substance abuse. But the only way you can claim that as a reason for saying it doesn't count is if you also discount all the data from around the world that convincingly shows that abortion is responsible for mental health issues and substance abuse issues. So you can't say that, well, she didn't die from her abortion, she died because she killed herself. And you can't say that and be intellectually honest without saying, well, why did she kill herself? So the best data set in the world says that abortion, that you are more than four times more likely to die following an abortion than you are from from having a baby. Um, That's accurate data. And the doctor that put that together has had at least six different articles published in peer reviewed journals that all come to the same type of conclusions that abortion is more risky than childbirth. That doctor being the Finnish doctor? Dr. Gissler, G-I-S-S-L-E-R, Dr. Gissler. Yeah, it is interesting to note then that um, by doing our part in expanding knowledge of these studies um, is helpful rather than solely relying on a study from 10 years ago um, that may have been put together questionably or is missing some great uh, pieces of data that would be denied by any reputable journal today for missing pieces. So um, I do uh, thank you so much for that analysis because that is knowing that we have these other studies to build upon to help us uh, thwart these lies is very helpful. Um, and to know that there are two that are very significant in the number numbers and following. Um, it, it's not surprising. Sadly, we know that there are psychological, emotional, and physical effects that happen with abortion. Dr. Uh, Reardon, I know we followed his study uh, closely as well. Um, so to have these available and to be aware of them is always um, a good idea to be equipped with that info. 
but I do want to go ahead and move on to another one that's been a hot topic in the news. Um, as people have been saying, uh, kind of misconstruing and confusing facts and data and laws that are across the nation, state to state, putting out uh, just provocative statements about miscarriages and how they will now go to jail and how they can no longer treat their ectopic pregnancies because they'll go to jail. Um, can you speak to these uh, claims that are out there now? Absolutely. Um, addressing these claims and, and coming to an accurate conclusion requires that your discussion about them be intellectually honest. Uh, and that's the biggest problem we have with trying to have a rational debate uh, with people who are on the other side of this issue. You can respond all day long with facts and quote studies and cite science books that, that tell the truth and you just get you know, vulgar responses and uh, personal attacks from doing so uh, because that's all they have left. Um, so for the listeners who are rational and open-minded, I want them to hear this very clearly. Just because a procedure called DNC or just because a medicine called Cytotec is sometimes used to complete the miscarriage process when a pregnancy has already failed and just hasn't passed spontaneously does not mean that it is an abortion to provide the care for that patient simply because you also can use Cytotec or a DNC to perform an abortion. Uh, in a miscarriage, a DNC or the administration of medicine to promote the emptying of the uterus is necessary because the child has already died and the tissue just has not passed. Elective or induced abortion uses either a DNC or medication or some other procedures to first kill a living intrauterine child and then remove the pregnancy. And those are two completely different things, and it's not appropriate uh, or accurate to compare them in any way. The, the confusion that some people have is lies in the fact that just in terms of medical terminology, the word abortion just means the ending of a pregnancy. It is our culture of death and the legislative and judicial things that have allowed abortion for so long in our country that have given the word abortion a different meaning. The word abortion, as it relates to the ending of a pregnancy, when you put the word spontaneous in front of abortion, and it's the term is spontaneous abortion, that is the medical term for a miscarriage. Something that happens as the result of illness or an accident of nature or an injury or a defect of some kind. Something that is not chosen by the patient or the doctor, it is just something that happens, which just makes it so ludicrous when people say, oh, well, Dobbs outlawed miscarriages. Um, excuse me? <laughs> How do you outlaw something that happens naturally? Uh, if that works, then let's pass a law to outlaw tornadoes and hurricanes, and then we won't have to be worried about weather warnings. I mean, you can't do that. Um, but the term induced abortion means that when you look at that rationally and specifically and accurately, that means you have a living intrauterine human being in a pregnancy, and you have chosen to end it 
by some means, either procedure or medication or both. And that's very different from spontaneous abortion. Let me ask you this real quick. You mentioned that, the, and we see this a lot of, of changing of definitions and twisting of terminology. Has that been since you've gone through medical school that those word shifts have happened or is it they're, they're kind of just being skewed a little bit more over the past several years? Well, they're skewed a little bit more over the past several weeks because once, you know, nobody compared having a miscarriage and made it equipped through a false equivalence between having a miscarriage and having an induced abortion until Dobbs returned the ability of the states to regulate induced abortion to the states. And then all of a sudden, there's all this confusion. It didn't exist before that. And if you think all the way back to before Roe, people didn't get prosecuted for having miscarriages. People didn't get prosecuted for taking care of women with miscarriages. You just did it, which we can still do. The states don't outlaw miscarriage. Uh, In fact, the Texas law specifically exempts miscarriage care and ectopic pregnancy care from the law, and most other states do as well. Uh, If they don't specifically name those things, they exempt emergency care, which a miscarriage that's bleeding, an ectopic pregnancy, those are emergencies. So to, to draw the false equivalence between ectopic and miscarriage care and induced abortion and saying they're all problematic for providers from a legal point of view is just, is just false. Uh, it's kind of like nobody, until heartbeat laws started passing in different states, nobody on either side of the pro-life, pro-choice type, uh, side of the uh, debate questioned whether or not the fetus really had the embryo had a heartbeat at five and a half weeks because the world's leading expert on embryology, Dr. Keith Moore, in every edition of every textbook he's ever written says human life begins at conception and the heart begins beating at five and a half weeks. A recent study from Oxford talks about how our heart really starts beating even earlier than we thought it did and uses the term fetal heartbeat embryonic heartbeat. It doesn't call it cardiac activity. It doesn't call it pulsatile electrical activity. It just uses the common sense approach that if there is physical motion occurring that results in the circulation and pumping of blood, you can't call that anything but a heartbeat. And that's what the fetal heart begin, the embryonic heart begins to do at five and a half weeks. It is actually the first organ in the developing human being that begins to function as it is intended to function in adult life. It pumps blood. So nobody argued with that until they started passing heartbeat laws. And then all of a sudden, all the abortophilic experts are popping up on the closest podium and saying, oh, well, it's really not a heartbeat. Nobody ever brought that up until heartbeat laws started getting passed. And that's why there's the focus on misleading people through terminology and trying to draw a false equivalence between the care rendered for a miscarriage and the care rendered for an ectopic pregnancy with what they consider to be health care in terms of induced abortion. There is no equivalence. Just because a similar procedure is used in the two different situations doesn't make the situations the same. Uh, And it's false to say anything to the contrary. Ectopic pregnancy is the same. An ectopic pregnancy, most people know, is also referred to as a tubal pregnancy. It's when you have a pregnancy that is not developing inside the uterus where it's supposed to be. And because it is outside of the uterus, it no longer has no chance 
it not only has no chance of progressing to viability and survival for the child, it threatens the mother's life and requires immediate care. So when people who support abortion rights and want to make a score fake point by saying, oh, well, women with ectopic pregnancies can't get care, or I had to wait until the hospital lawyers let me take care of this patient, they're creating a a false situation and promoting a false scenario at the expense of the woman suffering from an ectopic pregnancy. Bottom line, there's nothing, there's no way to argue with that. You can try, but that's the truth. Um, The care provided for an ectopic pregnancy is not abortion care. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists actually just released a statement that says both ectopic care and abortion care fall within the spectrum of reproductive care for women, but they're not the same. I've paraphrased that. I don't remember the exact wording, but that is available. And I actually had somebody on Twitter that I got into a debate with because she popped up that document and said, see here, it's the same. And I posted a screenshot and circled it and said, no, they say it's not the same. They, they think it's that, that both are important to women, but they say it's not the same. Planned Parenthood says, uh, and statements available from their websites, if they haven't pulled them down yet, um, says care for an ectopic is not abortion care. There's a nearly 20-page document on ACOG's website about providing uh, care for the ectopic pregnancy that talks about what they are, what the risk factors are, how to diagnose one, and the different alternatives for treating them. And not anywhere in that document does it refer to abortion care. And finally, the icing on the cake is abortionist Dr. Jen Gunter, who's made a very big name for herself, being sensational with some of the stuff she says, got into an argument with somebody on Twitter a couple of years ago who, and who said, but isn't ectopic care abortion care? She said, no, we don't call taking care of ectopics abortion care because it's not abortion care. We call it taking care of an ectopic pregnancy. I'm the expert. I know. Thank you for coming to my gin talk. Um, and there are two tweets. I have screenshots of them that uh, where she before she blocked me because she didn't want to talk to me. Um, so I've got screenshots of those tweets. So when Planned Parenthood and the American College of OBGYNs and abortionist Dr. Jen Gunter and Heartbeats Medical Director Brent Bowles all agree that care for an ectopic is not an abortion, then you can pretty safely say that care for an ectopic is not an abortion. Uh, when we don't agree on anything else, we all agree on that. And I do think that that is something to keep in mind too. It's the fact that when, um, when we are all able to acknowledge the woman in this, because that's, what's being thrown out in this situation of slinging mud back and forth and putting out these lights they are taking out the care of the woman. They're confusing the woman who is very scared and looking for information, but we all can, um, state that we're in our hearts doing this for the woman. So when we start to take away the politics of it and we go back to just that information, I think that it's always truth always comes out and we are always able to find the medically accurate information, which is no woman is going to go to jail for having an ectopic pregnancy or a miscarriage. That is simply false. Pregnancy centers are not going to be in trouble for 
discovering such a thing and guiding them to a doctor for care for follow-up, um, in those situations. Um, and also just, again, peeling the blinders away, getting out of the politics of it, because every state nationwide has something in the law that protects the life of the woman, because of course we want to protect and save all lives involved in every pregnancy. But we do understand that these situations do happen. And to be perfectly blunt for like, as a woman, um, I have unfortunately had two miscarriages and it is so rude and insensitive to even try to confuse the two, um, as being one in the same of a miscarriage is an abortion when, for women who I know and myself and my mother and who've all experienced it, it's, it's a slap in the face in a way, um, from a very heartbreaking experience. Um, and again, we know the, the emotional effects that women have from abortions as well. So to all of the confusion just is wrong for women on so many levels and dangerous as well. Um, but I know that there is an agenda that is being moved forward. Um, which is why they do continue to take facts out of their arguments, um, which is leading me to my third claim um, for today. Um, so we've already talked about abortion, uh, the, the myth that abortion is safer than delivery and the myth that um, ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages will send women to jail. So let's talk about abortion pill reversal and um, all the different claims uh, against it and that it is unethical and unproven. And, um, tell us about your experience with APR and why, and what you've witnessed, uh, to counter these claims. Sure. Um, very happy to talk about this as well, because it's an important issue to me. Um, if the abortion industrial complex was really all about choice and was really neutral on the issue of whether or not women choose life or choose abortion, then they would respect the choice a woman makes if she swallows that first pill and then realizes that for her, that was a mistake and she would like to do something different. Um, that's just another choice. So if they were really neutral arbiters of choice, then they would support the woman in that choice, but they don't. They mislead her, they tell her nothing can be done, they lie to her and say nothing can be done, they lie to her and say, your baby will have birth defects if it does survive, you must complete the process. Um, they're not advocates for women and they're not advocates for choice. They are advocates for abortion, uh, but not for women and not for choice. And here's the evidence. There are four different lines of evidence that support the, what's no longer a concept, but a proven reality of the success of abortion pill reversal. Mifeprex, the first, or mifepristone, the first drug given in a chemical abortion is a medicine that is in itself not toxic. It's not poisonous, uh, doesn't really do anything. It's one and only action is the blocking of the progesterone receptor. For pregnancies to survive and progress normally, they must have high levels of progesterone in the system. That progesterone in the circulation achieves its function by activating the progesterone receptors in the uterus, promoting better blood flow into the uterus, promoting relaxation of the wall of the uterus so it will stretch with the growing pregnancy. Uh, that's the function of progesterone. And by introducing a progesterone blocker, 
you tighten up the blood supply, reduce the fluid and oxygen and nutrition that are going to the baby. It usually kills the baby and it weakens the placental attachment so that if the pregnancy then doesn't pass on its own after the baby's dead, a second medication called Cytotect or misoprostol is given to basically induce labor in the first trimester and cause the tissue and the baby to pass uh, frequently with a great deal of pain and a lot of blood loss. Um, that's how medication or how chemical abortion works. The concept of reversing or interfering with the action of the progesterone blocker by just adding supplemental progesterone is a concept that's supported by the basic medical science subjects of biochemistry and physiology and pharmacology. All courses that every physician in the United States has to take and pass during their first couple of years of medical school. If you don't pass those classes, you don't get to be a doctor. You don't get to pass go. You have to either repeat the classes until you pass them or drop out of medical school. So everybody who has doctor in front of their name has passed a course in biochemistry and a course in physiology and a course in pharmacology. And the concepts taught in those classes support the concept of reversing the action of mifepristone by supplementing with natural progesterone. Then there's animal data that supports the topic. Uh, a Japanese researcher in the late 1980s, as, as a French pharmaceutical company named Roussel Euclef was developing mifepristone and trying to get it approved for abortion use, a researcher in Japan decided to give a large population of pregnant rats mifepristone and half of them, he did nothing. He just gave them the mifepristone and half of them, he gave mifepristone and followed it with progesterone. Well, guess what? In the mifepristone only group, two thirds of the, rat, uh, two -thirds of the rats lost their baby rats. The, the embryo rat embryos, all 30, or, um, two thirds of them all died. And when they looked at those rats and dissected them and looked at their tissues under the microscope, there were characteristic changes in the microscopic appearance of the tissue from the uterus and from the ovaries that were caused by the mifepristone. But guess what? In the group that he gave progesterone to, none of their embryos died. 100% of the rat embryos lived in the rats that were given progesterone after they were given mifepristone. Uh, furthermore, when they looked at those uterine and ovarian tissues in the rats that had been given progesterone in addition to the mifeprex, none of them had the microscopic changes that were evident in the mifepristone only group. So the animal data is overwhelmingly convincing that progesterone will work to interfere with, and in most cases, stop the, the embryocidal effect of mifepristone. Interestingly, two thirds of those rat embryos died. Our human data says two thirds of patients that try to reverse will live. So there's the animal data that supports it. Then the largest study that's ever been done on using this in humans uh, was accomplished by Dr. Delgado, published in 2018 initially involved somewhere in the neighborhood of 750 patients and more than 500 of those patients we were able, he was able to complete the data collection and use their results in uh, formulating his conclusions. Uh, but the, the study looked at about 
10 or 12 different dosing regimens for giving progesterone to women who had taken mifepristone but changed their minds. And they were all given within the first three days of taking the mifepristone. They were given to women who had decided not to use the Cytotec, and then their results were tracked. And across the board, half of the babies who were given supplemented with progesterone survived. Now that's compared to how many, you have to ask yourself, how many would have survived if they took the mifepristone but didn't take the Cytotec and did nothing else? Well, the abortion industry data that's available says somewhere between eight and 24% of those babies may live. Dr. Delgado's study across the board with more than 500 patients says that 48% of women given any of a number of different means of progesterone will survive. And of those different dozen or so groups, the group that was given what we now call the high dose oral protocol, uh, which is the protocol that's used by Heartbeat International for abortion pill reversal patients, 68% of them were successful in preserving the life of the baby. Not only that, but the risk of premature delivery in those women, the, the baseline risk of preterm delivery, which is one of the biggest uh, drivers of healthcare problems for pregnant women, uh, in the baseline population, preterm delivery is about 10%. Out of these more than 500 women who were given some form of progesterone to reverse the action of mifepristone, only 2% of them delivered prematurely. So the only conclusions you can draw legitimately are two thirds of the women who want to reverse the action of medication abortion will be successful when given the high dose protocol, and they will be four times less likely to have a premature delivery as the pregnancy progresses. Um, those are the conclusions that can be drawn. Uh, and then the fourth avenue of evidence is the human experience. I've delivered babies for whom I have reversed the action of mifepristone by prescribing progesterone early. Um, I've seen them and held them at 38 and 39 weeks and handed them to their mothers uh, who were overjoyed at the success that they had experienced. Um, the human experience is inarguable. Thousands of women across the country have reversed the action of mifepristone by taking progesterone. The very first one that's documented, I think, will be 18 years old this year. So this has been successfully happening for nearly 20 years. Uh, furthermore, doctors who have really investigated this and really care about the issue are so eager to participate that there are more than a thousand providers enrolled in our abortion pill reversal network panel of providers. And they do so free of charge. They're providing their services without charging the patient, without being paid by heartbeat, without getting any money from anybody. And they're doing so by answering the phone in the middle of the night and on weekends to talk with our staff uh, at the hotline and then with the patients about the potential for reversing it. So the abortion industry doctors make their living by aborting babies. The reversal network panel of providers does it because they know it works and they're willing to do it without being paid for it. And that's what the human experience says about abortion pill reversal. And there is a reality too, that the women who seek it out, they are finding us. It is our duty and obligation to help them try. 
Um, so to, to fight its ethic, um, how ethical it is and such is, um, just wrong on many levels because these women deserve a chance to try to save their pregnancies. And so thank you for your, uh, effort on that. And I just want to kind of bring us, uh, wrap it up here to kind of go through real quick again, um, what we've talked about and where you are just such a wealth of knowledge for one. Thank you. You're just pulling out studies, um, left and right and statistics, which is very helpful because the facts do matter and they really do help show the truth that so many people, um, are choosing to deny right now, which is laughable on one level because they put out misinformation, fighting misinformation. Um, but I do thank you for spelling things out very clearly and succinctly, um, to help us combat these three myths. So I'm just going to wrap it up in a nice package of, uh, flat out. No abortion is not safer than delivery studies show it. And we will, um, create a page to actually have these links to this for data. So no abortion is not safer than delivery. No women will not go to jail for having ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages. It is unfortunately a natural part of life, um, that some of us will deal with, but it is not criminal. And to say otherwise is patently wrong. And then three APR abortion pill reversal, um, has saved thousands of lives and it is through the use of progesterone, which is, has been used since the 1950s in pregnant women for, uh, multiple uses for care. Um, and so far all the information, all of the studies, um, have shown that it has had positive effects. And then of course, those smiles that we get to see and the babies we get to hold who have been rescued by their mothers after first making that chemical abortion choice. Um, so I do want to thank you again, um, for just bringing your expertise to us on pregnancy help podcast, Dr. Bowles. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and turn this back over to Christine, but I do, um, have a pretty good idea that we will continue this conversation, um, as more myths and claims come out and we continue to build, um, build the, tr uh, uh, web pages and information, uh, with the facts and the studies that, um, we know already exist and, um, are out there for any medical provider or, um, general public use, uh, to find to help combat these lies as well. So back to you, Christine, thank you so much. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you, Dr. Bowles. This has been a really fascinating episode to listen to. So much information to take in. So I appreciate your time with us. Um, if you haven't subscribed already and you're listening to this episode, be sure to subscribe. We have more coming. I have a full schedule for August that I'm excited to get out to all of our listeners. So stay tuned, subscribe, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Pregnancy Help Podcast.